Okay, welcome and thanks very much for coming out. Uh, this is the first lecture in the public lectures series and, I'm, and it's the first week of classes, so I'm really glad to see people coming out tonight. Um, welcome back to the new academic year. I see uh, community members, I see students, and, uh, and this is the public lectures series, and this is the first in the series, and I'm really um, pleased to announce the beginning of the season. I think some of you have come to these repeatedly. Uh, as you know, uh, we advertise our talks on the web at lectures.princeton.edu, and we also announce these lectures in local newspapers in the area. And, uh, and I think most people all also know that we webcast and cablecast these lectures. With a delay of about one week, these talks are archived at the lectures website. So before we begin, I want to uh, ask you to please turn your phones and beepers to a setting that makes me unaware that you have them, which would be great. Thanks very much for doing that. All right. So uh, I'm Sam Wong. I'm chair of the Public Lectures Committee. There are several members of the committee tonight, um, and, uh, and you can read about all of us at lectures.princeton.edu. Um, the season is, has a lot of interesting lectures. I just want to, before we get going, tell you about a few of them. Uh, this term, we have Sean Carroll coming, evolutionary developmental biologist. We have a panel on the future of conservatism in America. We have the neurologist, B.S. Ramachandran. We have Al Alfred Brendel, former Italian prime minister, um, Romano Prodi. Um, novelist Javier Marias, and others who you can read about on the website. And in the spring semester, we have others coming as well, including Andrew Sullivan, and, uh, and we just heard that we have uh, the director, John Waters, coming. So we have a lot of interesting people coming uh, in the coming year. Um, tonight's lecture is a Stafford Lytle lecture. The Stafford Lytle lecture was founded in 1899 with a gift of $10,000 by Henry, St Henry Stafford Lytle of the class of 1844. He was a lawyer and active in New Jersey politics, first president of the New York and Long Branch Railroad Company. Um, he, uh, he was very fond of Princeton, and Princeton took the place of the wife, home, and children he never had, according to Dean West. Uh, he initially suggested that Grover Cleveland, ex-president of the United States, be, delivered, be invited to deliver remarks every year from year to year. But after Mr. Cleveland's death, then the fund spread out to other topics uh, beyond what Mr. Cleveland had to say. And, uh, and speakers in this fund, have, uh, in this series, have included in the past uh, Theodore Roosevelt, Albert Einstein, Arnold Schoenberg, Thurgood Marshall. And then in the last few years, we've had Daniel Liebeskind, Seymour Hirsch, Stephen Levitt, Ian Baruma, and Orlando Patterson. So those are the kinds of people who we've brought for this, uh, all uh, on topics of social importance and interest. Tonight, I am extremely pleased to introduce uh, our speaker, Mr. Stephen Berlin Johnson. Mr. Johnson is a social critic and a technologist. His area of expertise is a very general one. What he does is he sees emerging trends and explains why they're relevant to our lives. Uh, I'll start with the personal. He's a, as he says on his website, stephenberlinjohnson.com, a father of three boys, husband of one wife, and author of five books. And he lives in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and comes to us from uh, very close by. And I just want to give you a little flavor before we begin of the books that he's written. Uh, many of them are bestsellers. They are all... Um, widely admired by fans of uh, this interface between technology and everyday life. And to just give you an idea of the subject matter, they include cholera epidemics, the discovery of oxygen, the role of scientists in public life, and my field, neuroscience. And just to list a few of the books, which I'm sure you've heard of, they include Mind Wide Open, his own personal experience of neuroscience, Everything Bad is Good for You, which created a lot of waves when it came out, The Ghost Map, which covered the London cholera epidemic of, of 1854, it says 1954 on that card. And uh, in his current book, the most, uh, the most recent book, The Invention of Air, which is about the personal, political, and scientific life of Joseph Priestley. In his uh, remaining time, he's a columnist at Discover Magazine. He's written for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and The Nation. He's appeared on The Daily Show on Charlie Rose and The News Hour with Jim Lehrer. He's co-founder and editor-in-chief of Feed. He's a former distinguished writer-in-residence at the New York University Department of Journalism. And he's currently a contributing editor at Wired Magazine, and he blogs at Stephen, with a V, StephenBerlinJohnson.com. Um, and his writings have um, influenced political campaigns, urban planning, and uh, the battle against terrorism. So, um, so he does a lot of things. And tonight his topic for us is The Myth of the Echo Chamber, Politics in the Age of the Participatory Web. So I ask you to welcome with me Stephen Johnson. Thank you, Sam. Um, 
Yes, right between Theodore Roosevelt and John Waters. That's where I imagine myself. Uh, uh, what an honor um, to be here and to start off the, the season this year. Thank you guys uh, for having me. Uh, I'm thrilled to, to be here. And because I'm so thrilled, I, I did something which I don't normally do for these talks, which is I actually, I've generated some new material. Um, and I actually have written down said material um, uh, because I, I wanted to take this opportunity to kind of systematically talk about something that I've been ranting on and off uh, on my blog and in various other forms over the last 10 years or so. And so I wanted to kind of put all these arguments together and, and try and do it in, a, in what hopefully will be a helpful way. So this is, is my take on the myth of the echo chamber. Now, I think we were going to lower the lights. Am I supposed to do that here? Uh, let's see. Oh, no, it's doing it. Great. Okay, awesome. So let's start with the phrase that's been on in the news recently, you lie. When Representative Joe Wilson shouted these two words at the President of the United States two weeks ago, the event was instantly cited as yet another sign of the decline of civility and the rise of partisan rancor in modern American politics. You've all heard the complaints. We live in a hyper-partisan age where all political conversation has been polarized into combative extremes, where the middle ground of honest debate and consensus has all but disappeared. Invariably, the primary culprit behind this disturbing state of affairs turns out to be the emerging media landscape, everything from Fox News to the partisan blogosphere to link sharing on social networks, all of which enable you to selectively filter out all the dissenting voices and read, listen, or watch only people who share your basic political worldview. This is what we call the echo chamber. And by a wide consensus, it appears to be pushing the country towards political extremes. The, the primary legal scholar and, and critic who's been at Princeton recently um, and who's now actually in, in part of the White House administration, um, Cass Sunstein, is probably the person who's most associated with this concept of the, uh, of the echo chamber. And here's, here's a quote from Sunstein that I think represents the, the general argument. If Republicans are talking only with Republicans, if Democrats are talking primarily with Democrats, if members of the religious right speak mostly to each other and radical feminists talk largely to radical feminists, there is a potential for the development of different forms of extremism and for profound mutual misunderstandings with individuals outside the group. The more we talk to like-minded individuals, the further we get from the center, from the shared values of, of consensus. Now, when groups can filter their news by ideological persuasion, the long-term tendency is towards increased polarization and decreased consensus. In a mass media society where the news is conveyed through centralized channels, like the three networks or Time magazine, that shared experience helps us find common values as a culture. This is the Sunstein argument. When we filter, the story goes, we grow further apart. Now, I realize that many of you grew up in this combative inter internet age and thus have no memory of what life was like before the age of political extremism and divisiveness. So I thought it would be helpful just to set the stage to show you a little video I put together, thank you, YouTube, uh, of what life was like in the good old days when we all used to get along before Sean Hannity and the blogosphere came along divide us into our isolated echo chambers. So here we go. The state of Arkansas defying the federal government. Arkansas National Guardsmen under orders of Governor Faubus challenging the law of the land. Preventing nine Negro youngsters from attending the Central High School in Little Rock. For Democrats, the Chicago Convention of 1968 was a nightmare. <laughs> Meeting after the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, Democrats fell into chaos, fighting Chicago police and each other. With George McGovern as President of the United States, we wouldn't have to have Gestapo's tactics in the streets of Chicago. Mr. Daley is not pleased with Senator Ribicoff. How hard it is, how hard it is to accept the truth. Newsmen were questioning Miss Bryant about her national crusade against gay this persons when four self-proclaimed homosexuals from Minneapolis interrupted today's proceedings. If we were going to go on a crusade across the nation and try to do away with the homosexuals, uh, then we certainly would have done it on June the 8th after one of the most 
overwhelming victories in the country. Um, uh, but we didn't. We, we, we tried to avoid it and went into a place called Norfolk, Virginia, and were met with protest and uh, um, all kinds of problems. And uh, uh, every... Oh, oh, oh. Security agent, security agent. No, no, let him stay. No. Let him stay. Well, at least it's a fruit pie. Huh. Let's, pray, let's pray for him right now. Anita, let's pray. Anita, why don't you pray? This is the uh, late 90s professor in Seattle. So, as I'm sure you can see, there was a delightful feeling of consensus and shared values in the air back then. Uh, it was just sometimes hard to tell because of all the tear gas. Sure, they were sending in the National Guard to keep African Americans from attending school, and they had Gestapo tactics outside the Chicago Convention Hall, and the Klan rallies, and Stonewall riots, and Black Panther parties, but at least they didn't have to watch Glenn Beck. The premise that we live in an increasingly partisan political times where our worldviews have diverged so much that we can't agree on basic truths is, to my mind, a bizarre form of political amnesia. Yes, we have Fox News and MSNBC, but we no longer have lynch mobs. We no longer have people getting firehosed by the authorities because they want to ride in the front of the bus, or war protesters getting killed on their campuses. We no longer have radical political groups with significant followings arguing for violent revolution. We have broad public consensus on the role of women and minorities in government and in the workforce. We have a mixed-race president who won in a landslide. Thirty years ago, the left believed that the appropriate top tax rate for individuals should be more than 70%. Today, we're debating whether it should be 35 or 40%. If you go back and reread Teddy Kennedy's famous convention speech from 1980, as David Brooks pointed out in the New York Times a few weeks ago, You'll find that the centerpiece of that speech was a call for the federal government to ensure full employment, a position that literally no longer exists on any mainstream political platform. Even the vitriolic debate over health care of late is restricted to a small centrist stretch of the political spectrum. On the left, the single-payer option has been off the table from the beginning. On the right, no one seriously argues for fully, a fully private solution, given the success of Medicare and the VHA. Yes. The right hates Obama and the left hates Bush, but the left hated Nixon just as much and some of them hated LBJ for good measure. There is far more consensus in the country's political values than there was 30 years ago. We agree on much more than we did back then. So this raises two puzzling questions. If the story of the past few decades is a trend towards increased consensus, then why do so many otherwise smart people seem convinced that we're headed in the opposite direction? And if we are, in fact, living in an echo chamber society, why have our values converged in the Internet age? So let's start with the first question, which will lead us to the answer to the second. Why is there this collective delusion that our political values have grown more polarized? The answer is, in part, that politics sounds more partisan than it did in the Cronkite age. Media includes far more opinion, expressed at volumes that were rarely heard directly from the authoritative figures, the anchors, reporters, talk show hosts, in the golden age of mass media. Of course, viewers in the golden age saw plenty of heat in their day when they tuned in for Cronkite, including some of the clips that you just saw. But the anger and vitriol wasn't coming from Cronkite himself. It was coming from the rest of us, in the streets of Chicago, or Birmingham, or the Castro. This is, I believe, the source of the illusion, a kind of sociological trick of the eye. We feel like we're constantly in argument mode, even as the gap between our actual positions is narrowing. The perceived volume of the debate has grown louder, but the range of actual debate has shrunk. We assume that the changes on the screen are reflected in the broader trends in society, but the screen can deceive us. We've actually seen the same pattern play out in the discussion of social networks of late, with the concern that teenagers are now spending vast amounts of time texting and tweeting with their friends about nothing. But of course, teenagers have been spending vast amounts of time talking about nothing for most of the 20th century, if not all the way back to the you know, invention of adolescence itself. But that time-wasting didn't used to happen within media, in public, visible to strangers and sociologists and op-ed columnists. And so we assume, because we can see it, it must be on the rise. 
But just because it's happening on screen doesn't mean it's happening in real life. We're killing more virtual people than ever on our game screens, and the nation's homicide rate is as low as it has been in 40 years. Now, I should be clear about this. There is a case to be made against the tonal excesses of the opinionated media. They can be irritating, shrill, dogmatic, and worst of all, mind-numbingly boring. But when critics bemoan our decline into partisan extremism, they're not just making an aesthetic judgment. They're saying something more substantive, which is that the explosion of opinion in the media has dire civic consequences. Confronted with this onslaught of red meat extremism, extremism, the American public is bound to mimic it and retreat back to their red and blue corners, leaving empty, in Kafka's words, the beautiful room between them. A media landscape filled with extremism is bound to create a country of extremists. But those extremists have not, in fact, emerged. The opposite has happened. For the last three decades, the extreme flanks of popular opinion have again and again caved. The left caved on single-payer health care, generous welfare entitlements, radical disarmament, 70% bracket taxes, and defiant union support. The right caved on civil rights for minorities and women, and to a lesser extent for gays and lesbians. They stopped opposing Medicare as socialized medicine, and they accepted the legitimacy of a social safety net insured by the state. Recently, one hopes they seem to have caved on their desire to keep the financial sector as unregulated as humanly possible. There is far more consensus on the right that global warming is real and man-made than there was 10 years ago. The disagreement now lies in what we should do about it. And let me just say, I, I'm not necessarily arguing that any of these positions are necessarily the right ones. I'm saying that the overall spectrum of debate has narrowed and that we agree, you know, in, in terms of supermajorities of the American public, we agree on much more. So, so the best case study in this, uh, I think, is, is a comparative study of, of the two most volatile issues of the, of the last decade and then of the 60s, the Iraq War and the Vietnam War. Um, it turns out that the Gallup organization conducted almost exactly the same poll every year, starting at the beginning of kind of the, the major escalation of the Vietnam War in late 64 and 65, uh, and starting in 2003 with the, with the uh, invasion of Iraq. And the question was, was the invasion of Iraq slash Vietnam a mistake? And we have very rigorous data, the exact same phrasing of the question. And what you can see is the, the changing pace with which the, the country came to the consensus that both wars were, were a mistake, right? So we start here at the very beginning. I'll talk loud and get over here. We start with this very clear consensus. And the yellow areas basically are um, supermajority agreement, right? So two thirds of the country agrees either that it's a, uh, not a mistake or that it's a mistake, right? Um, you have kind of less than, you know, basically like 35, 40 percent. Um, and up here you have about 65 uh, percent in yellow, or 60 percent. Um, and so we start here, in both cases, with this agreement that these wars are good wars. Very few people think that it's a mistake to get into Vietnam. Very few people think it's a mistake to get into Iraq. And what happens is that the country actually moves much more fast, much more quickly to the consensus with 63, 64% thinking that Iraq was a mistake than they did in the case of Vietnam. It wasn't until 1971 that more than 60% of Americans thought that the Vietnam War was a mistake. Now, this is during a period when 10 times as many Americans were dying overseas in Vietnam. But it took the country a lot more time. They went through a lot more period of divisiveness and argument about this before we got to a general agreement that this probably was something we shouldn't be doing. And so you can see that speed of the country actually kind of reaching consensus despite all the volatility, despite all the arguments on, on Fox News, despite all the, the blogosphere. We actually reached a, a kind of a, 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 you know, significantly more than a major, majority consensus on, on the Iraq war, much faster than Vietnam. And the other case study in this is gay marriage. Often cited as a sign of our partisan times, the Rovian red meat injected into local elections to bring out the base. Yes. People feel very strongly about gay marriage. But no one was talking about gay marriage at Stonewall or during Anita Bryant's press conferences. They weren't talking about it because gay marriage was a middle ground consensus debate that had no oxygen in the volatile political climate of the 60s and 70s. The gay rights movement in 1969 wasn't interested in celebrating the institution of marriage. It was interested in moving beyond the institution of marriage. By the same token, Anita Bryant wasn't debating whether gay Americans should be allowed to marry each other and have the state approve their union. She was arguing you should be allowed to fire someone on the spot because he or she happened to be gay. The fact that gay marriage is one of our hot-button issues is now a measure of how much consensus we've reached in just three decades. 
We're still disagreeing as a nation, but we've caved at the edges. The center is not holding, it's widening. There's one significant area, actually, where the center has, in fact, failed, which is worth mentioning. While the American public agrees more, our national politicians have indeed grown more partisan in the votes that they cast. Party-line votes in Congress are now far more common than they were several decades ago, as Farhad Manju points out in his thoughtful book, True Enough. But of course, they are casting those votes across a chasm that has narrowed. They are taking party-line positions, but the positions themselves are much closer to the other party's positions. I suspect that polarization is actually a reflection of flaws in the political system today, not the media echo chamber. As Manju points out, gerrymandering and the campaign finance system have surely played a role in increasing party-line votes. So then the second question. Why hasn't the echo chamber produced the divisive effects that Sunstein and others have feared? Why is consensus on the rise, not the decline? The answer, I think, is simple. The echo chamber isn't soundproof. In fact, I don't even believe the echo chamber really exists. Think about it. To believe in the echo chamber theory, you have to believe that the problem with the internet and cable television is that there is far more agreement and predictability on the screen than there was in the media world 30 years ago. Apparently, we're all sitting around in our private echo chambers, nodding along in agreement with our fellow ideologues, consuming exactly the information that we set out to consume that morning. And here's, here's a quote from the New York Times technology writer, Amy Harmon, who's, who's a wonderful reporter and a great writer, but this is kind of representative of this attitude. The internet became the ultimate tool for finding like minds and blocking out others long before supporters of candidates began seeking one another out on meetup.com. With online dating sites, searches can be tailored by age and income, email forms from the most narrow bands of subjects. Um, it, it, the web allows users to tailor the information they consume more than any other medium. Social scientists even have a term for it, cyber balkanization. Now think about that quote. The web allows users to tailor the information they consume more than any other medium. Really? So let's say, let's say I'm interested in the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, and I go out to the library and take a, a book out on the design and collapse of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, and I sit down to read it. Is that information not tailored? Now compare what happens when I take that same interest and I type it into Wikipedia. This is the problem with Wikipedia. Start with Tacoma Narrows Bridge, you get Suspension Bridge, Structural Collapse, three hours of fascinated clicking, and then you end up with William Howard Taft, 24-hour analog dial, lesbian and erotica, uh, lesbianism and erotica, Batman, Fatal Hilarity, Taylor Hansen, cotton t-shirt, wet t-shirt concert. Content. <laughs> this is from uh, XKCD, it's a great kind of geek comic site, right? Um, this, this is, I mean, I think most of us who've spent some time on the internet will tell you that this is what it's like. This is how the web works, for better or worse. You dive into research mode, ready to wrap yourself in the airtight echo chamber of things related to the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, and three hours later you're reading about William Howard Taft and Taylor Hansen. That is the great curse and blessing of the web. It is fiendishly skilled at distracting you with some random discovery three clicks away from your original destination. If you want a medium tailored to your interests, go read a book. Ironically, the connective rambles of hypertext have actually been invoked to support the echo chamber theory. Sunstein and others have done studies where they look at the percentage of links that partisan bloggers send to like-minded blogs. They have found, not surprisingly, that liberals link more to other liberals and that conservatives link more to other conservatives but the partisans invariably do in fact link to the opposing viewpoints, just not as frequently as they link to their allies. This all sounds damning enough, but of course you have to ask the question, compared to what? The print edition of the National Review was perfectly tailored to a conservative thinker in 1985, but you can be sure, for technical reasons at the very least, it contained no direct links to the Village Voice or the New York Times op-ed page. Reading the National Review, you were truly trapped in an echo chamber with no escape route available to you. Sure, they quoted the opposition, just as bloggers do today, but if you found one of those quotes strangely pervasive, uh, persuasive, the barriers that kept you from investigating that new perspective were steep. Today, you just click. And all of this ultimately revolves around the power of, of filters, of these kinds of filters, to reduce surprising, serendipitous, unplanned discoveries, where you stumble across a new perspective on the world that challenges or expands your horizon. 
In recent years, a puzzling meme has emerged on the op-ed pages with a, with a strange insistency. The rise of the web, its proponents argue, has led to a decline in serendipitous discovery. Just a few months ago, the New York Times technology editor, Damon Darlin, complained that the digital age is stamping out serendipity. Everything we need to know, this is the quote, everything we need to know comes filtered and vetted. We are discovering what everyone else is learning and usually from people we have selected because they share our tastes. Or consider this elegy, which I love, for the endangered joy of serendipity, authored by a journalism professor named William McKean. Think about the library. Do people browse anymore? We have become such a directed people. We can target um, what we want thanks to the internet. Put a couple of keywords into a search engine and you find, with an irritating hit or miss there, exactly what you're looking for. It's efficient but dull. You miss the time-consuming but enriching act of looking through the shelves, of pulling down a book because the title interests you, or the binding. Looking for something and being surprised by what you find, even if it's not what you set out to look for, is one of life's great pleasures, and so far, no software exists that can duplicate that experience. While I agree that it is one of life's great pleasures, I disagree that there is no software. There is software. It's called the World Wide Web. I find these arguments baffling. The rise of blogging has clearly been a boon to serendipitous discovery because from the very beginning, bloggers have had an exceptional zest for the miscellaneous. Consider the site boingboing.net, one of the most popular blogs in the world. As I write, the front door of Boing Boing contains the following stories. A piece about copyright law in the UK, news about an upcoming nerdcore rap concert, a collection of photos of pears that have grown naturally into the shape of a Buddha, a story about the private library of the author Neil Gaiman, a report on a wave of suicides in India, a video of Senator Al Franken debating healthcare reform, a history of cinematic special effects, a story about firefighters abusing energy drinks, and an overview of new changes to Wikipedia's editing rules. Despite this extraordinary eclecticism, Boing Boing has over two million regular readers, making it roughly the side of magazines like Time or Newsweek. When critics moan about the decline of serendipity, they habitually point to two old media mechanisms that allegedly have no direct equivalent on the, med, on the web. McKean mentions the first one, which is easier to dismiss, browsing the stacks in a library or a bookstore, pulling down a book because the title interests you or the binding. Browse, and I say this as, a, as, as someone who spent a lot of time in the stacks as an undergrad and as a grad student. Browsing the stacks may well be one of the most abused examples in the canon of things we used to do that were so much better. If you are in an active browsing state where you are deliberately seeking out interesting new possibilities, the web is the greatest serendipity engine in the history of culture. It's not an accident that the basic interface we use for the web is called a browser. Thanks to the connective nature of hypertext and the blogosphere's exploratory hunger for finding new stuff, it is far, far easier to sit down in front of your browser and stumble across something completely brilliant but surprising than it is walking through a library looking at the spines of books. And really, how many people actually pull down random books as McKean claims, because they're attracted to the binding. Does everyone use the web this way? Of course not. But it's much more of a mainstream pursuit than randomly exploring encyclopedias or library stacks ever was. The millions who drop by Boing Boing and stumble upon on a daily basis are there because the web satisfies their appetite for surprise and accidental discovery in a way that no medium has dreamed of doing in the past. That's the irony of the serendipity debate. The thing that is being mourned has actually gone from a fringe experience to the mainstream of the culture. Now, the second analog era mechanism that encourages serendipity involves the physical limitations of a print newspaper, which forces you to pass by a collection of artfully curated stories on a variety of topics before you open up the section that most closely matches your existing passions and knowledge. Sunstein has actually a great phrase for this, which is the architecture of serendipity. On the way to the sports section or the comics or the business page, you happen to collide with a story about the abuses of the African diamond mines, and something in the headline catches your eye. A thousand words later, you've learned something powerful about people living halfway around the world whose existence you had never contemplated before. And perhaps there is some kind of serendipitous click in that collision. You've been looking for a new charitable cause to support or contemplating buying your spouse a diamond ring. And then this story drops in your lap and helps you complete the thought. You weren't looking for a story about diamond mines, but it was exactly what you needed. This is, indeed, a superb example of serendipity, and no, it is no doubt that newspapers facilitated comparable accidental discoveries countless times over countless breakfast tables during their heyday. The question is whether the transition to the web makes this sort of discovery more or less frequent. 
If you compare the front pages of the print and online editions of a newspaper, the web actually appears to have the upper hand. The Harvard scholar Ethan Zuckerman compared the front pages of the New York Times and found that the print version had 23 allusions to articles in the paper on the front page, either in the form of the lead articles themselves or short little summaries or teasers, the kind of print equivalent of a link. The front page at NewYorkTimes.com in the Zuckerman study contained 315 links to articles and other forms of content. If the architecture of serendipity lies in stumbling across some surprising connection while scanning the front door, then the web is more than 10 times as serendipitous as the classic print newspaper. Now, the echo chamber theorists would no doubt argue that many people bypass the front door of their online newspaper, going directly to the sports or business section page they've bookmarked, or to some other filter tailor-made to their pre-existing interests. No doubt, millions of people use comparable filters every morning. One could reasonably question whether people like this who have gone out of their way to avoid encountering the big picture of the newspaper front page were ever likely to stumble across a diamond mining story at the breakfast table with the print paper. But Sunstein and Darlin and McKean are indeed correct that the, that the internet gives us topical filters that were unheard of in the days of mass media, though they pale beside the focused exclusivity of the book, as we saw. But those filters are only part of the story. Beyond bookmarking, filters are a second-generation addition to the architecture of the web. They are not native to it. What is native to the web architecture are two key features that have been great supporters of serendipity. A global distributed medium where anyone can be a publisher, and a hypertext document structure where it's trivial to jump from a newspaper article to an academic essay to an encyclopedia entry in a matter of seconds. The information diversity of the web ensures that there is an endless supply of surprising information to stumble across, and the links of hypertext ensure that we can get to that information at lightning speed or follow trails of improvised association that would have been painfully slow to follow in the age of print media. So ironically, the problem with the web is that there's too much noise, too much chaos. That's why the filters were inve invented in the first place. The web has created a veritable Cambrian explosion of diversity funneled directly to your home, social, political, sexual, ethical, you name it. There are literally millions more points of view available to you today in your home than there were 50, 15 years ago. We have filters because the web has unleashed too much diversity and surprise, not because we have too little. Sunstein and his allies are right that the filters work in the service of the echo chamber society. What they don't understand is that the filters are losing. The funny thing about this is that Sunstein's principles are exactly right. It's just that his diagnosis has it backwards. People are more likely to reach consensus and common ground when they are exposed to viewpoints that differ from their own. And that is exactly what is happening. The diversity and connectedness of the new media landscape has created an environment where you are forced to confront people who possess stunningly divergent viewpoints. Even Fox News, that great villain of polarization, conventionally stages its partisan debates as just that debates. Yes, Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly like to rant against the liberal elite, but they've usually got a member of the liberal elite sitting in the studio ranting alongside them. So take as an example, imagine two historical stereotypes, an unreconstructed socialist living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in 1985 and a passionate homophobe living in a small Midwestern town around the same time. They each had plenty of echo chamber going for them back then. They were lousy with echo chamber, in fact. Now imagine they time traveled 25 years to the present is it easier for them to now stumble across divergent views in the modern world, for the Manhattan liberal to accidentally follow a link to the National Review online, or to surf past Sean Hannity on the way to Keith Oberman, or the Midwesterner to stumble across Ellen DeGeneres talking about her wedding plans or click on his way over to andrewsullivan.com? I think the answer is definitively yes. I believe, actually, the data in political affiliation over that period supports this premise. If we rewound the clock to 1985 and made a prediction about where we would end up 30 years later, 25 years later, right, if we got back to right before the explosion of cable news perspectives and the beginnings of the mainstream internet, the echo chamber prediction at that point would have been that the forces of selective exposure in this new word, world would drive people into these different pools of information, confirming and amplifying their existing beliefs, strengthening their alliances to their initial tribe, and growing further and further away from those with different perspectives. 
My prediction, on the other hand, would have been that the connective, diversifying properties of the new world would express themselves in the opposite direction, people breaking free from party lines and creating more eclectic political worldviews stitched together from the diverse experiences that they can now encounter on the screen. The links and the diversity would win out over the filters. And what actually happened during that period? Through all the swings back and forth between the two parties, the single most pronounced trend since the early 90s is the steady rise of Americans who consider themselves independent voters, unaligned with either party. Just a few months ago, the Pew Foundation released this study, Independence Takes Center Stage in the Obama Era. It's actually a long-term study. This just shows you a few years, but it actually goes back um, 70 years. And the, the, the latest poll shows that the highest percentage of voters, we've reached the highest percentage of voters self-identifying themselves as independents in 70 years. There are twice as many independent voters as there were during the mass media heyday of the Kennedy election in 1960. Yes, the new information paradigm has been a boon to people who believe only what Glenn Beck or Michael Moore has to say. But all those independents make, make me think that the common ground, the space that connects the pools, has become an even more popular place than the echo chamber. The more they shout on the screen, the more the rest of us agree. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was this is loud, Mike. Uh, that was great. Very helpful. Um, there's one thing that you observed, brought up and observed that I'd love to have you say more about. So you made the distinction between all of us in the streets being partisan or opinionated, and the media being opinionated. It seems to me. So what I'd like to hear you say more about is the consequences of that change in the media. That is if you think of the course of the 20th century as having been to establish a code of ethics for the journalistic profession, that's breaking down. Um, does that matter over the long term for the quality of civic discourse more specifically? Yeah, great question. Okay, so lots of things. There could be a whole other talk about that. Um, there is a continued role for, um, a crucial continued role for the kind of the value systems and standards and procedures that we've been developing around traditional journalism for, you know, more than a century um, and beyond. Um, what's clearly going to happen is that the that people who play those roles are going to continue to play those roles, um, but they won't dominate the discussion in the way that they did before. Um, and what we don't yet fully know is whether they will become kind of an afterthought um, and whether the you know kind of the issues will be kind of driven by the the blogosphere and by the edges of the debate, um, or whether we will continue to have kind of gatekeepers basically who are there who have a set of standards and who are kind of fact checking and and being authoritative voices in some fashion. So one of the things that that I talked about a little bit in um, in my second book, Emergence, um, it's kind of a, a, a telling moment in the history of media, the, the whole history of the Jennifer Flowers um, uh, story, which uh, the, the you know, alleged affair that Bill Clinton had with Gen Jennifer Flowers, I guess genuine affair that Bill Clinton had with Jennifer Flowers. And there was a kind of a crucial point in the 92 race um, when Clinton was running in the, in the primaries where this story had been kind of bubbling around um, and no one had asked him about it yet. Um, and at a certain point, an ABC reporter, I think it was Jim Wooten, actually asked him, you know, did you have an affair with this woman, Jennifer Flowers, the story is out there, and he denied it. Um, and so there was this big question about, was that question and answer le a legitimate part of the political debate? And what happened is, all, all the networks had this footage of this um, thing in the kind of public feed, and they all gathered together, all the kind of, you know, the old guard in their editorial rooms in Manhattan, probably within 10 blocks of each other, and they all came up with the same conclusion, that it was not news. And so it was not mentioned on the nightly news broadcast that night. But what had happened a few years before is that Ted Turner had struck a deal with all these local affiliates around the country, which was to say, hey, I'm starting this cable news network. I will give you national news footage every day 
if you'll give me your local footage when something crazy happens. You know, when there's a flood or a fire or a serial killer, um, I want to be able to put that on CNN and I don't want to actually have to put reporters everywhere. So let's make a trade. And so it meant that all these local affiliates were getting just this kind of raw feed, unedited basically, from CNN. And so all the local affiliates that night saw this salacious question asked to the leading Democrat and they ran it at the top of the news broadcast all around the country. So a story that, a national story was not mentioned on the national news, it led all the local news stories that night. And by the next morning, it was a national news story and all the networks were covering it. And I think it was one of those first cases where you could see the kind of the broader network, the kind of a distributed network of people were starting to make the decision about what's a story and what's not. And so I think we are definitely going to lose some kind of control in that process. Um, and that means that there's, it's going to be noisier. There are probably going to be more, you know, borderline truths that circulate and, and come across your radar screen and make it onto networks or mass media. Um, but I think that there is a fundamental process of democratizing the media that in the long run is the better alternative because there also are going to be a lot of valuable insights that are going to come out of widening that perspective as well. And the truth is, if you believe that it's important to listen to a diverse range of opinions, if you believe that echo chambers are bad, then part of that is that you have to give real estate on the screen and in your life and your kind of media landscape over to people who you think are nuts. That's the price you pay if you want to have a true democratic conversation. So, you know, everybody always talks about the, you know, Hyde Park corner soapbox, people getting up in public and the kind of important civic discourse of people sharing their ideas. Well, the people who talked at Hyde Park corner, a lot of them are a little crazy. That's what happens when you have people standing on soapboxes, right? Um, but we, we value that because on the whole, we think if the, if the conversation is open, if enough people are allowed to participate, we will start to move towards some kind of common ground. The reason why I think this the, the data here on consensus is so important is because I think it's the early indicator that that common ground will kind of emerge out of all this tumult and chaos. But it will always be possible to point to things and say, that would have never gotten on television 30 years ago. Just like it will always be possible to say, that 30-page entry on Buffy the Vampire Slayer would never have gotten into Britannica, but there it is on Wikipedia. Um, there's going to be more stuff. It's going to be noisier. But in the end, I think the overall kind of tendency of the system should be towards more consensus and more common ground. Yeah. You seem to be asking two. You seem to be asking two questions in your presentation. Do, is there an echo chamber, or I guess more precisely, how echo chamber e right. is our uh, current mediascape? And then is this uh, media landscape responsible for mass polarization? So I just want to ask, make two comments, questions uh, on each of those and just get your response. So on, on the second one first, how responsible is our media landscape for mass polarization? I think you might be missing one mechanism that uh, several prominent communication scholars have, have put forward. Uh, Kathleen Hall Jamison and Joseph Capella recently came out with a book on this. And their contention isn't so much that the echo chamber makes people more partisan, but makes them either more active or more resistant to correction. Um, so if we're worried about uh, the birthers or the 9-11 truthers or whichever side of the debate you're worried about, that might be a, a sort of a more direct connection to the type of uh, argument that Cass Sunstein's making about uh, factual misperceptions uh, as a result of echo chambers. Um, so while you present rise of independence and, and some information about that, it may not necessarily be directing it, your the, the evidence at the sort of direction the current social science is going in. Right. Uh, uh, back to the, the, the first question then is, does the echo chamber exist at all? Uh, you, you make a compelling argument that the echo chamber always existed in that we've always sort of lived around, you know, birds of a feather flock together, and that was true before the internet. Um, but I, I guess my question is, you spend a lot of your time talking about the ways in which internet architecture could enable uh, more collaboration or discussion. Certainly the Wikipedia example that you provide from XKCD, Wikipedia has all kinds of information from all sides, very scrupulously balanced. Um, but I guess my question is more directed at what does happen. You, you cited a couple of studies. You cited the uh, studies that cast unseen sites about internet cross-linking that in fact do show that people tend to have this uh, political selection mechanism in who they send to 
other studies of blogs readerships have also similarly indicated that people tend to read blogs that agree with them. And that's not perfect, but it's a pretty strong and uh, pronounced tendency that's been found repeatedly across a lot of social scientific methods and, and disciplines. So I guess my question is, um, separate from the evidence that this could or perhaps might uh, produce uh, some sort of deliberative discourse, um, emergent discourse, uh, What's the evidence that that is happening? Right. Okay. Well, both both questions. I think you, you connect. So I, I think there's you know there, in in terms of the first one, uh, you know there's kind of a fact value distinction here, right? In the sense that like I think it's it's pretty clear that on on most major values, when you think about you know the you know a lot of the civil rights issues, for instance, um, that we have trended towards sharing those values more and more over the last. 20 or 30 years. So most of the big issues that were hot-button issues or continue to be hot-button issues, there's more commonality there. Um, on facts, the, one of the tendencies of these systems is that you can keep alive a semi-truth. Um, it's a little bit easier to do that because no one can definitively shut it down. Um, so it's easier to kind of get out there with the birther thing and just keep that at the, at the kind of the margins of debate. Um, the question in my mind is whether you can generate enough force for something that is really, you know, clearly untrue to, to actually have it really influence debate and actually, you know, have the majority of Americans believe it. Um, I don't think with something like the birthers we've, we've, we've seen something like that happen yet. And, and that's partially because there are forces to fact check as regularly as there are forces to create you know, and spread erroneous information. And so they're doing battle as well. And there's, you know, tremendous, you know, you know all the studies of how quickly Wikipedia gets corrected and how much fact-checking goes on within the blogosphere and so on and so on. So, so if you believe on the whole that people in general have a, a slight trend towards, tendency towards wanting more truth and slightly more ability to, to discern truth um, and separate it out from falsehood, even if it's slight, then there's an argument that the overall system should, over time, trend towards more truth with pockets of untruth continuing and, and probably louder than they were before, but not dominating the whole thing. But we don't really know. We, yet, we haven't seen a blatantly, un, you know, kind of a, a birther thing become mass and mainstream and accepted yet. When that happens, I don't know. I'll eat my words, maybe. Um, on, the, on the second point, uh, remind me what the second one Oh, yes, okay. So... Right. Well, I mean, all I can say is this is the, the, the tricky thing about these arguments and, and everything about is good for you, the book I wrote about pop culture, I ran into this as well. These are not absolute points. I'm talking about the, where is the society trending, right? Um, given where we were before in the old system, now we've got this new system, and which direction is it going? Um, and so I, it, maybe it sounds like a joke, but it seems to me, I almost put up a slide saying, you know, in the study of links between partisan allies, they found, you know, that they linked um, only seven times to the opposition as opposed to 28 times to, the op to, their, to their allies. Um, but back in the days of print, it turned out they linked zero times. <laughs> and in, in every, every study you do of a print magazine will find that same number again, zero, 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 right? Because, because I really do think it's true. It is, you, there's more leakage out from a, a partisan blog now to the opposition than there was reading a, a print magazine back in the day. You just, it was my, if you read something and thought, that's interesting, I think I'd like to check that out. You got in your car and you drove down to the library and you went around and tried to find an old issue of the magazine that referenced the article that had been written, and then maybe you found it. There, there was always you know, partisan stuff that you agreed with in that issue. What there wasn't was, was an easy way to get to the opposition. So the point is that the, the means of escaping the echo chamber have increased over that period. They are not perfect. People still do tend to link to people they agree with, but they tended to talk about and write about people they agreed with when they were writing in print. It's just the platform has become more connected in this way. So, I, you know, I just, I, I think that the basic experience of the web is, a, is if, if you, think about it this way, do you think that as you switch from your life before the web to, to this web, that there's been a decrease in surprising weird stuff that comes across your radar every day. Yeah, yeah. Before the 
Right, 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 okay, okay. So imagine what it was like. I, let me tell you what it was like when there were, you know, I mean, I kind of remember it was like before cable, kind of, you know, I'm 41, so I know a little bit of this, but, you know, they're just, the, the lack of, um, the lack of weirdness and of surprise and of sudden, you know, detours that you weren't expecting, it just wasn't something that happened a lot with media. And so it's just more chaotic out there, and that chaotic is, kind of force is taking people to the edges and to places that they weren't expecting to go. Now, it would be great to do, more studies of this, um, but you'd have to do, you know, a, a, a clear comparison to what it was like before. Because if you're not talking about what it was like before, then, then it's fine to say that people point to their, their allies just as they cited their allies in, in print. There's no, there, there's nothing new there. Right? I mean, how is the same thing with the, with the Wall Street Journal op page. Op-ed page, let's say that, or the Times op-ed, op-ed page, you know, people on the different perspectives. Okay. Other questions? Yeah. Um, sorry. In something from uh, Gallup, um, it showed that about 25% of Americans thought that John F. Kennedy was the greatest president in U.S. history, compared to, like, Lincoln and Jefferson, and another 25% thought it was Ronald Reagan. Um, how do you reconcile statistics like that with there not being an echo chamber and there being not fixed ideologies that people uh, always yeah, agree sorry, with? Sorry, I couldn't cut you. What was the, what was the stat that Mike is, makes it kind of... Right, it was uh, 25% for and, Kennedy. Yeah, and what was the other? 25% for Reagan. Right. And this is in the context of FDR and Lincoln and right. Jefferson and Washington. Well, I think the context is that, you know, we don't have a lot of historical context. Um, uh, but I, you know, I think that there's no question about that. Um, the question is, do we? I don't think that's necessarily a sign of partisanship. I think that's just a sign that we aren't educating ourselves enough about the history of the country. You know, I mean, I don't necessarily think it, it plays to to the kind of the echo chamber side of things. Um, but do you disagree? You would say that that's a sign. Yeah. Yeah. No, we need, I mean, I've, I've spent the last two books writing history books because we need more history, you know, we need more historical context, there's no question about that. Um, I just think we're, that, that, you know, that that's not, the, I mean, I suppose, here's an argument, to go against my argument, which is that there is something about the kind of, the, the immediacy of the, the blogosphere and the amount of time that, that we spend, when we spend kind of saturated in political discussions, um, it's very easy because there's so much interesting information out there to get pulled into the the debate of the moment, right? Um, this is why political campaigns are so addictive on the web because there's so much information there. They actually are really wonderfully covered. We have way more information about a, a live, active political campaign than we did 20 years ago. It's you know, there's been a great expanse of useful information that's out there. Um, but that pulls you into you know who's up, who's down in the polls for South Carolina next week. And it doesn't make you think about, like, what is the history of South Carolina, you know? <laughs> and so that's probably true that our kind of, as our, as our kind of debate gap has narrowed, um, you know, our time horizons have, have narrowed as well. And there's certain, I'm sure there's something lost in that. All the way in the back. Um, just a, a general question, I guess, on your, your feelings about whether we as individuals in society now are are doing enough to be information and media literate? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I think that, I, th- I really think that there are, kind of, there are two kind of separate things, and this is a little bit of your point about, you know, what you can do with the tool versus what is actually done, right? And, and just to reiterate, we need to know more about what is actually done, but I just don't think that Sunstein and those studies is actually showing it as well. But, but to, to your point, so, you know, you can, there's no doubt you can take the internet and use it to, conf- can, you know, confirm your, your worst beliefs about the world and the most, you know, inaccurate things you could possibly think of if you really set out to do that. Um, I think that, you know, the tendencies of the system um, on the whole are pretty progressive compared to, say, what you could do by watching network television 30 years ago. Um, just the just the, the language of, of the web, just the fact that it's textual is is very important. We, you know, if you've gone back 30 years ago and asked everybody where are we headed as a society, it was 
the word is dead, text is over. Nobody reads anymore, nobody writes anymore. We're just becoming an image society. There are a lot of books published about this. Neil Postman wrote a bunch of books about how we're just turning into the kind of consumers of the image. And in fact, the exact opposite happened. Um, big study that Stanford just put out about how this generation is writing more than any generation in, you know, in, in multiple generations because their lives are saturated with text. Um, so, so, there, so I tend to think that there's, you know, that there's a kind of a secular trend here towards better and better values and, and the, the, the internet on the whole has been a force for good for these reasons, some of which I've talked about today. But you can always use it better, right? Um, so, you know, I, I, I kind of go out of my way to try and enhance the kind of serendipity factor of the tools that I use um, and seek out sources that are unpredictable and follow links in kind of unpredictable ways. I use, I use software, for instance, I use a software called Think to organize all of my notes um, that does very interesting kind of semantic connections between documents. Um, so I'm able to kind of take a little passage and say, show me other things that I've read about or written about over the last 12, 15 years, all the data that I have stored on my local hard drive. Show me interesting, surprising connections. And so the, the software actually is almost like a kind of an external memory device. It's constantly reminding me of things that I've forgotten about that are, that are weird and a little bit off, but end up forming interesting connections down the line as I start to explore them more and more. So, the, you know, and then there's the whole question of how do you use Wikipedia, right? Um, Wikipedia is a fantastic, uh, you know, resource for getting a quick lay of the land in a new field that you don't know that much about. You can kind of jump in and get a quick overview, and you see links in lots of different directions. And the things that are covered there are extraordinary, and they're things that just weren't covered in other encyclopedias before. Um, and so it's a fantastic resource for kind of landing and trying to figure out what's there, but then you have to dive in, and then you have to go to kind of the original sources, and you have to spend more time, and you have to kind of trust but verify. Um, and I, I kind of describe this mechanism as, and I think this is a phrase that's been used uh, elsewhere, as kind of skim and plunge is kind of the mechanism. Like, you go in and you use tools like Google and Wikipedia to kind of quickly skim and get the lay of the land, but then you have to plunge in and really read things more thoroughly. You have to print things out and, you know, get away from the screen and spend some time and investigate and get into kind of the, the detail. And to the extent that this, you know, the Google generation only skims but doesn't learn how to plunge, then there's something lost in that, right? Um, so I think we need to, you know, we need to be teaching this. And maybe, the, you know, one of the most important skills that we do teach is how to manage this incredible gift we've been given in terms of all this information being at our fingertips. Um, like, it's never been a better time to be a librarian, it seems to me. <laughs> you know, the idea of, like, being the person who's in charge with teaching kind of information literacy, um, it, it, you know, it's never been uh, more central and, and more challenging in a way because there's so much of it. Uh, yeah, all the way over here. Thank you. Um, I guess um, you've talked about uh, how it would almost be a great thing for uh, sort of people being able to see both sides of the debate, and ideally people would be able to have equal access to that and be able to kind of form their own opinions, not just be delegated to a single echo chamber. But I'm, you've also talked about how there seems, there is that bias towards the view that you already know. And so do you think that blogs, for instance, linking to opposition, has it reached a sort of optimal level? Is there an optimal level where it will still attract readership, but... Um, it will attract readership that wants to be more biased towards what they already know, but it's still more opt open-minded. Do you think that there is a sort of point like that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think, I'm not sure what the optimal point is, and, it, and in some ways it kind of depends on the, the blogger and where they are in, in the spectrum, you know. I mean, I think it's interesting. This is, this is partially anecdotal, but I think, I think it's not, I think, I think it's telling that Andrew Sullivan has, you know, kind of became the, the kind of the most celebrated and, and I guess probably statistically the, the most popular political blogger, um, because you know Sullivan's own particular politics are very unusual. They followed this kind of interesting course, and he has you know libertarian elements. He has you know kind of religious elements. Um, you know he's he's 
gay and has kind of progressive elements um, turned against the Iraq war in all these ways. And, you know, he is definitely by the standards of kind of red and blue states, he's hard to put on the map, right? Um, and so the, again, the, the kind of intuitive argument that I would make without a, a lot of kind of demographic data to support it other than the rise of independent voters is that that's an, that's a, and I think Sullivan would say this very clearly, and he, maybe he will when he comes, is that that's, that's the kind of political mind that we should expect to see more of in the internet age. In a connected age, you're going to see people who are like, I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this. I don't need to go to my party for kind of one-stop shopping. Because that, that was something you did when it was hard to get to your party and hard to, you know, it was hard to subscribe to the National Review and it was hard to then sample other things. But when you can sample so easily, you know, you're going to have more people who are like, sure, you know, I'll try a little bit. I'll mix a little of that libertarianism with a little bit of that Catholicism and a little bit of that gay rights. And, uh, you know, I can put something in and make that my own kind of political worldview. And so, I, you know, I think there is, there's, there's two things. There's, there's a plausible argument for why that would be something that would emerge out of a connected, distributed, diverse information landscape. And there's a plausible argument that we are seeing more people like that than we did 20 or 30 years ago. That's, that's not an haircut-type you know, case yet by, by any means, but I think that there's more evidence that that's happening than there is evidence that the country is getting, in terms of its basic values, is getting polarized and more predictable. I wanted to take just, uh, I think we're perhaps close to winding down, I sense, but I wanted to take that last question and and turn it into a question about media. So it may be that individuals use uh, information media to seek out a variety of information and may encounter unexpected links. But one thing that that strikes me as being missing now as newspapers are in decline is the lack of an arbiter of commonly agreed upon knowledge or... uh, uh, a, a Walter Cronkite kind of phenomenon in which certain sources of information are regarded as mostly legitimate and um, and sources of accepted true facts. Okay, and I just want to link this back to two periods in uh, in history. One is the last few decades when this function was perhaps filled by networks in the case of television and major newspapers in the case of of the printed word. Uh, but then I'm also thinking back on a longer time scale to perhaps 200 years ago when people used pamphlets and street corners and other, in some ways, very fragmented means of spreading information. And the thing I'm wondering about is, uh, you've written about many different periods in history, and I'm trying to, to, uh, what I'm hoping to do here is draw you out a little bit on how one extracted true insights into the state of affairs, say, 200 years ago, and how we might... um, encounter a means of extracting true information now. And I just have to say that in terms of looking for links that link to the opposition, um, it may be that I have many sources of information available to me, but a lady in Provo, Utah, who's really convinced that Obama was born in Kenya and I are not going to have a whole lot of overlapping link browsage. You know, maybe we both know that Michael Jackson died. Okay. But other than that, we're not going to have a whole lot in common. And so what I'm looking for is, how does one get to true? Right. Thanks for giving me the simple question at the end. <laughs> well, I think one way you do it is, is this, the, the Sunstein method, which is that you have an, you know, an open discussion as much as possible with enough viewpoints together, and you have this very ugly process whereby the, the conversation slowly gets pulled towards truth, but it never fully gets there. And certainly without that arbiter, um, it's, you know, there are going to be fringe ideas that are demonstrably false that are always going to be able to kind of linger a little bit louder than they used to. Um, well, so the, the question about 200 years ago, well, the connection in some ways is, is with the last book, Invention of Air, when I wrote about Joseph Priestley and Ben Franklin, is, you know, we are, there, there is this kind of second wave of pamphleteers um, that's happening with the blogs, and also the, the coffeehouse culture that I wrote about in the book. I mean, there's a huge impact in, in the 18th century um, of, uh, you know, so many brilliant ideas from that period came out of coffeehouses, people getting together in this kind of new social form 
hanging out, over-caffeinating, um, just, you know, entranced by this amazing new drug that had entered their society, and, uh, you know, riffing for hours um, over various things, and it's just an amazing number of things came out of that culture, and partially it's because um, there was a diversifying of backgrounds that happened in that period. Where the coffee house was about, it was this kind of hub, a little social network of people who had lots of different interests, amateur interests in lots of things. Somebody like Priestley or Franklin who would sit down and they would talk politics and they would talk religion and they would talk chemistry and they would talk you know, electrical science and they would you know, talk about the American situation and they would talk about all these different issues. And it was precisely because they had different backgrounds, they had different fields of expertise. Priestley's life was transformed because he met Franklin and Franklin was like, hey, you should go and study electricity and actually do some chemistry. You'd be pretty good at that. And then he you know, isolated oxygen for the first time and, and discovered a whole host of other things. So so that culture of bringing together people in an environment from different viewpoints and letting them talk it out is the beginning of the process of understanding and, and, and the movement towards truth. The problem is there's an intimacy to that setting that is lost on the Internet. It's, it's not ten people sitting around face-to-face around a table. It's you know, millions of us clicking and passing on links and posting in forums and things like that. And so it's hard to create that same kind of environment. Um, a, a lot of people have been working on trying to create you know, tools that let people get together in physical space using the connective powers of the internet. Um, but it's hard to kind of recreate that balance that we had back then. But you, know, you look at that period and there were, you know, there were, it was really, the, you know, there was kind of a, a thriving blogosphere in a sense of amateurs who had no real credentials and had no editors who were writing pamphlets and kind of ranting about things. And, you know, we, we advanced the ball a lot in the 18th century. We came up a lot with a lot of kind of formative ideas that we're still kind of benefiting from. So, you know, thus far, every time we've widened the channels, brought more people into the conversation, allowed more people to have a voice, in the long run, it's turned out to be a good thing. There have been hiccups all along the way every time we do it, but every time we've done it. Now, it may well be that this is the one time we've gone too far, and we shouldn't have let those people in, or those people at the edges. We shouldn't have given those people a voice. Um, but I suspect probably that this, the historical story will stay the same, and we'll find that in the long run, democratizing media leads to a better and more informed society. Thank you very much for listening. And great questions. <laughs>